Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you heard all the rave about the new Quick Grill located inside the Be Quick Chevron on Veterans Boulevard? Come visit Be Quick Chevron along with Quick Grill, Be Quick Food Marts, your locally owned hometown convenience store, wherever you are. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Heck yeah, we have made it to the eve of Friday, and then the weekend will be upon us. We are in the first week of daylight saving time. I, for one, am enjoying that. I like to like to be a little longer throughout the evening, but it's a little chilly. <laughs> You're not supposed to have frigid temperatures when you got longer days. That does, that's like a mismatch. Well, that's the price we pay for having such a warm February. Yeah, that is true. That was weird, wasn't it? Yeah. But... Uh, and it's going to be that way for we got some storms moving in tomorrow, right? Tonight and then yeah, there's tomorrow. supposed to be a front moving across the Magnolia State later tonight. Depends on where you are in the Magnolia State as to when it's going to hit in Central Mississippi. I know it's going to be around midnight. Okay, so we got to be on the lookout for that. Nothing severe that I remember reading about, but uh, yeah, it's never fun when it rains when it's dark. Right, I agree. So we'll keep an eye out uh, out for that for sure. A little fired up I was yesterday. I walked away from here exhausted from being so fired up. But there's so much to get fired up about. And you know, when you take a few days off, you're supposed to relax. And I did. But uh, can't stay away from the consumption of news and information and everything going on. And so you know what happens is it just builds up when you're away. And when you come back, you're just you're ready to uh, get after it. Something that I've always tried to stay away from, and I certainly would like to see others in this country do the same, especially those that are in the, in the public square, such as Second Gentleman Doug Imhoff. You know who he is. He's married to the vice president, Kamala Harris. You know where I'm going with this, too. I see you shaking your head. Well, so that thing which you should stay away from, in my view, is equating someone or something to Nazis. It's I, like you automatically lose my attention when you do that. You have uh, demonstrated 
that you're just full of hyperbole and rhetoric and trying to make some twisted, distorted point rather than engaging in substantive, productive exchange, conversation. And so... Tells me he's also historically illiterate. uh, Correct. I mean, anybody that knee-jerk goes to Nazi... There are, there are a plethora of bad-acting individuals throughout history you could choose, but you just go straight to Nazi. That's exactly right. Thinking that you're just having, I guess, the maximum impact with your goofy statements. And the second gentleman said the, quote, hate, unquote, that led to the Holocaust is, quote, interconnected to the hate in America you see just going to a school board meeting. Really? So parents that are standing up to protect their kids from this radical Marxist ideology of transgenderism and CRT? That's being equated to the extermination, or at least the attempt to do so, of a race off the planet? That's the equivalent? You're a fool there, second gentleman. Rhino's well, right. Well, I mean, think about it. He's married to Giggles. He has to be a <laughs> bit of an idiot. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, you might not like what you see there because they're pushing back on their agenda. It's, and it's just parents coming out of their homes, concerned about their kids. Tired of the tail wagging the dog. Yes. Tired of kowtowing to an infinitesimally small percentage of the population that is mentally ill, and no one wants to admit that. It's unbelievable. He says, you see it in the divide that we have. Hate is interconnected. What does that mean, Interconnected. We've got to step up and speak out. We've got to call out the cowards, he added. Cowards? I don't see them as cowards. So, is he talking about the school boards? Did he finally get red-pilled a little bit? Because <laughs> the school boards sure are cowards when they call the cops on parents concerned about their own damn children. There's no doubt. I totally agree. So, let's just take the average mom or dad... That just that morning got up, got their kids up, got them all ready to go to school, got them to school, and then later that day or that evening, they show up. They're not getting paid to do so. They show up at a school board meeting out of their concern. They express it. They expose it. They call it out. We played the... The video of a child, I believe it was in Maine, an 11-year-old a couple of weeks ago, his father was flabbergasted at a book his child brought home. He checked out of the school library, and the kid read from the book at the school board meeting, and the adults in the room were embarrassed when the kid was reading it. Ron DeSantis, who the left just hates, I mean detests, who happened to read passages from books in the schools in Florida. 
Oh, he did one better. He played a video showing images from the books, and the local news had to cut away cut so off. they wouldn't lose their license. Unbelievable. So it's too indecent to put on the air, but it's okay to give to elementary school kids. That's how twisted and warped the left's mind has become. There's no doubt. So That's why I call all Democrats worthless, because they're in on it. And you know that several states, including the state of Mississippi, have banned these various gender transition surgeries and treatments. Florida, Texas, Tennessee, don't allow these hormone therapies and sex change operations on children. So Joe Biden wants to override all that and establish federal law, federal law, that would essentially nullify what these states have done, require states to allow these treatments and these radical surgeries that mutilate a child's body. And he goes on to say, and they call it this this category of transgender kids. What? It, so to the left, which I think is right out of the Marxist playbook, every everybody's got to be siloed and categorized and grouped. Well, that's intersectionality. What's well, nuts? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So Biden is pushing this. So the trans child is like the new trophy. It's like the modern-day trophy to the left. It's the new Louis Vuitton bag for suburban wine moms across the country. <laughs> that's true. It's, um, it's beyond just a category. It's become metaphysical. It's ontological and doesn't make any sense. But he's he's pushing hard. He said, what's going on in Florida, this is uh, Joe Biden talking, is as my mother would say, uh, why does he always refer to his parents? You're 80 freaking years old. Because in his mind, it's still 1953. <laughs> he says it's close to sinful. It's just terrible what they're doing. It's not like a kid wakes up one morning and says, you know, I decided I want to be a man, or I want to become a woman, or I want to change. I mean, what are they thinking about here? They're human beings. They love. They have feelings. They have inclinations that are, I mean, just to me is, I don't know, it's cruel. And the way we do it is we make sure we legislation like we passed on same-sex marriage. You mess with that, you're breaking the law, and you're going to be held accountable. Meaning, you have to allow these radical surgeries and hormone treatments on minors, which virtually every one of uh, ultimately regrets when they become adults and has physical and mental problems for the rest of their lives after this crap. That's what he wants, this president. But it makes the hospitals tons of money. We're coming right back. We've got Representative Charles Busby at 12.05, Tracy Barrientos from the Lighthouse Academy for Dyslexia at 11.05. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. 
bumping into this segment with a little Def Leppard because we just learned that, wow, that the drummer, Rick Allen, was attacked. I don't get this. The Four Seasons Hotel was attacked by Max Edward Hartley, 19 years old. He's from Ohio. He was hiding behind a pillar outside the hotel before he rushed at the drummer and knocked him to the ground, causing him to hit his head. What's that all about? So, Alan, you're probably aware, only has one arm. He lost uh, one of his arms, the left one, in 1984 in a car accident. Still pretty good on the drums with one arm. Exceptional, as a matter of fact. I've seen him perform live. He's incredible. This is uh, disturbing. He was just having a cigarette outside the Fort Lauderdale Four Seasons Hotel, and this wacko attacks him. Nineteen years old. Man. Stephen Gulfport, yeah. The drummer for Def Leppard, Rick Allen, was attacked by a 19-year-old outside of his hotel. Apparently, he's in bad shape. So we hope for the best for Mr. Allen. I'm so sorry to to hear about that. Wow. So yesterday we we talked a lot about the banking situation with the bank in um, Silicon Valley failing, essentially, being bailed out. They won't call it a bailout, but it is, in effect. And, and then Credit Suisse, right after that, comes out, says they got some liquidity problems as well. Uh, Other banks, First Republic Bank, and then Signature Bank. Signature Bank is, uh, had, had on its board Barney Frank, former Massachusetts congressman, who co-sponsored legislation regulating banks in 20. 08, following the financial crisis back then, it it uh, the legislation bore his name, Dodd Frank, Christopher Dodd, the other author, and turns out he sits on the board of this bank, Signature Bank, that's going down. And yesterday, I just made the point that. Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, others are so obsessed with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and ESG, environmental, social governance, more so than turning a profit. Well, you can do that when the money is flowing, and it's easy. And you can screw up a lot and still do well. That's when you know things are wrong. Because they were. They were screwing up a lot. Making bad decisions. Bad management decisions. Well, Signature Bank, they were more obsessed not so long ago 
with LGBTQ affairs, and their CEO was happy to bring in a consultant that would help them with pronouns. Just they, this past December. Yeah. This, this, uh, they hosted a company seminar on gender-neutral pronouns. Z in, I guess it's H-I-R. Is that her, her here? How do you say here. that? Five months. This is just five months before, as you indicated, they become the third largest bank failure in history. So we got some sound here for you from the CEO first kicking off this event. I'm Scott Shea, chairman of Signature Bank, and it is a pleasure for me to welcome you to this multimedia, multicasted, multispatial meeting of the Pride Council. And I'm just thrilled that there are about 40 people in the room. I understand there are something like 190 people at watch parties. So hi to you all at the watch parties. And I just want to say that the Signature Bank commitment to LGBTQ plus is not something that we just discovered recently. We were actually the first bank in the United States to have an openly uh, gay man on our board. Uh, you can Google it. It was Frank Salvaggio. And it made a lot of press. And actually, we were surprised because the funny thing is, it, it wasn't really all that relevant to becoming a board member. Right. It's uh, Right. Exactly. Okay. And so this, this person they hired, his, his name is Finn Brigham, and he's a corporate consultant on gender issues. It's a shakedown. But listen to Finn address the signature employees here. You know, the most common pronouns that folks are familiar with are she and he. Becoming much more common, and I, you know, I don't know if there's anyone in the signature bank world, but probably you have clients that use they, them as pronouns. Um, they're gender neutral pronouns on purpose. We talked about folks that are non-binary that intentionally don't identify as male or female. So some of those folks use they, them as their pronouns. Z is another gender neutral pronoun. Um, and the other part of that would be here, spelled H-I-R. And then there are some folks that say, don't use any pronouns for me, just use my name. So uh, I use he, him as my pronouns, but I'll go through all of these to talk about what they would sound like if I used each one. So you would say, have you seen her? She went to the store. Have you seen him? He went to the store. Have you seen them? They went to the store. Have you seen here? Z went to the store. Have you seen Finn? Finn went to the store. So that's what they all sound like. <laughs> oh, very important. <laughs> So, and the irony of all of this is they spend all this time and energy and money bringing this guy in to teach him about pronouns, and then they put it out on their YouTube as a learning experience for all of their employees. <laughs> Except yesterday, after discovering this video on their YouTube site, before I could even get it over to Gerard to look at, they decided, you know what, we're a little embarrassed by this. We're going to make this video private. That's right. Because I had said something to you. I said, I found the CEO, but I can't find the consultant. You found it, sent it to me. I figured out the uh, the area of the – it was like a 15-minute or so uh, video, I think, and I found – Oh, this. no, it was an hour oh, and 15 okay, minutes. okay, my bad. It was a full – it was the full seminar. I misread it. So, But I, I found the part of the clip we wanted to play, which we just did. <laughs> 
I checked it out again a little later, like, it's gone. I can't get to it. You're right. So they were trying to expunge They completely it. scrubbed their entire YouTube page. Unbelievable. So just so you know, folks, because uh, I know you're dying to know, well, how does this person that you just heard there, Finn Brigham, <laughs> how does he identify himself from a gender perspective? He's a genderqueer, transmasculine person. What the hell is that? That's a whole lot of words for <laughs> give me attention, I crave attention. What do you think they paid for that garbage? I'm telling you. Easily six figures. I guarantee it was a hundred grand for this guy to come in for a couple of hours and teach you about using pronouns. The reason I guess six figures is because in the video you had a panel of people learning who were the board of the freaking bank. (laughs) You're not getting them together to listen to anybody talk unless it's a big deal and it cost a bunch of money. You notice, though, he was just... Brimming with pride, wasn't he, the CEO, Shay there? Because we were the first bank to have an LGBTQ board member. Very important. Doesn't know squat about banking. And now we're, oh, I don't know, bankrupt. Because we were too busy having pronoun seminars. Instead of managing our balance sheet. This is the march to mediocrity I talk about all the time. That's it. Right there. In living color. I'm so excited we're having this seminar. You ought to have a seminar about managing risk. It would have been just as beneficial to their banking prowess if they'd had somebody come in and teach them all the names of all the X-Men since the beginning of the comic series. (laughs) Oh, Finn. (laughs) Gender, queer, trans, masculine person. Oh my gosh. That and then I don't know that you could get the full effect of it, but we found a commercial that they made that's absolutely cringe worthy. It was the happy members of team members of this bank that just a few months later are out of a job. Unbelievable. We're coming right back with more here on middays. We're in the Element Wealth Studios. FM. Days with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. It is middays. The Dow hopping around again today started out negative futures, and then the markets opened. The European Central Bank did increase rates this morning, uh, their benchmark rate by 50 basis points, half a percent. But investors were a bit on edge until 
They made that announcement. Now what is the old Fed going to do? Their, their future is a bit murky. The uh, Fed meets on the 22nd next week. We'll see where they go with that. Meanwhile, our old friend Robert Reich, without a doubt, one of the most miserable humans on the planet. I mean, just based on what he talks about all the time, he's just got to live a life of misery. He says, why is it that when progressive policies that help the bottom 90% are proposed, the question always seems to be, how will you pay for it? But when the top 1% ask for bailouts, tax cuts, and subsidies, the question always seems to be, how much do you need? Really? Well, you're wrong about that, Robert. But you're wrong about virtually everything you say, quite honestly. He also made a silly post and did write about the losses experienced by three billionaires. I know Zuckerberg, I think it was Zuckerberg and... Bezos and Musk. Yeah, they experienced significant losses of their asset holdings, which just tracks with the market in general and their massive positions in their respective companies, all of which have fallen. And he says the fact that they can absorb those sorts of losses, which are all on paper, of course, means they can afford higher taxes to pay more taxes. And this is a risk in that folks like Wright think that the tax system, the tax structure in this country is really designed to be punitive. It's a punishment for succeeding. They don't think about devising tax policy such that sufficient revenue is produced to generate the funds necessary to operate the government in accordance with the constitutionally appropriate roles of government. They never think about that. It's all about, how can I get more out of the most successful in society, filter it through my grubby, sticky little hands, and then shove it out the door on the other side to folks that I know will vote for me because of that. That's how they think about tax policy. And it's the risk and the inventions of the very people that he blasts all the time that have made all of our lives easier. Let's just be honest about it. That have given us all these wonderful tools that have increased the quality of life, not to mention the vast amount of people who have been lifted up the income ladder because they have leveraged the tools that these people created. So in other words, they created enormous societal value, so much so that we were all willing to part with our money to buy what it is they sell. And they got wealthy. And this guy's blasting that concept. 
blasting the concept of capitalism. There are winners and losers. That's just a fact. That's the way capitalism works. The alternative economic models, everybody is a loser. And so folks like Reich think, well, it's government's job to get in there and level it all out and make it all equal. Take from this party and give it to that one. That's what we got to do. Oh, and I got to skim off the top and earn fame. And when you look at these tweets, Rhino, and you look at some of the fools that comment, oh my gosh, it's scary. They live among us, they vote. And he's just totally wrong about this. He says the Trump-era rollback of banking regulations was a big mistake. The proof? Silicon Valley Bank's implosion. The least Congress can do now is help prevent this type of meltdown from happening again by restoring Dodd-Frank regulations for all banks, regardless of their size. I remember when this bill was signed into law, Dodd-Frank, which, by the way, is one of the three, the only three, notable legislative accomplishments of Barack Obama. The first was the stimulus, so-called stimulus, the American Recovery and Rescue Act, or Reinvestment Act. I think it's what it was styled. Isn't that right? A-R-R-A. They're so into all these stupid acronyms. But that was, consider this, $887 billion. I thought it was outrageous then. Now, we signed $2 trillion bills into law like it's signing a rental car agreement or something. I mean, it's insane how times have changed in that respect. But I remember when, that, when the Dodd-Frank went into law, I knew lots of bankers in the, the regional and community banks that now we're essentially going to have to adhere to all these regulations, that's when credit got extremely tight. They were not making loans on a wholesale basis as they were. And it is possible to do that in a responsible way. You've got good management, good boards, But when your management and your boards are more focused on pronoun seminars, like Signature Bank, then you know what happens is the Titanic runs into the iceberg because somebody's sleeping and not focusing on their core business. And that's exactly what happened here. You're wrong, Robert Wright. You're totally wrong. This was an effort by bank executives and boards to showcase these trophies, these ESG gender pronoun trophies. Look at us. I mean, you heard the CEO. He didn't say anything about their last quarter's results. He didn't say anything about the quality of their credit portfolio. He didn't say anything about how they have effectively managed and work within a difficult inflationary and Fed funds rate environment? No. He doesn't talk about that because they weren't. But by gosh, they had pronoun seminars. 
This is what happens when you put, again, ideology over merit and performance and quality and excellence. This is why we've got to return to unapologetic pursuit of excellence and where outcomes are determined and based on that. Not these ginned-up leftist causes. Not the thrusting of gender ideology and all this racial stuff uh, down the throats of workers, students, society in general. You're totally wrong, right? But you always are. A tweet by President Biden a couple of days ago, Rhino, it shows a handwritten note from what appears to be a young lady named Charlotte. And Charlotte writes, Dear President Biden, I just wanted to tell something not fair to ladies, underlined. Men are getting, underlined, more money than girls. I think you should fix this since you're the president. Even I'm a child and I think we should do something. The odds that this child wrote this are like zero. And when we come back, I'll share with you what the president said and give my thoughts on that. It's middays and we're in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, it is Middays, Super Talk Mississippi. So, talking about this letter from this young lady named Charlotte, sent to the president, where she's asking him to do something about the so-called wage disparity between men and women. Biden says, Charlotte, I couldn't agree more. Women lose thousands of dollars each year and hundreds of thousands over a lifetime because of gender and racial gaps, wage gaps. I'm committed to building an economy where my daughters have the same rights and opportunities as my sons. Now, you just sent me an article from Time, and I, I glanced at it. So... 
looks like they're debunking some of this nonsense. I'm shocked at time. They're pretty left-leaning. Yeah, but the wage gap has been debunked countless times by economists because it's lacking any and all nuance. Correct. It, so when you read poor little Charlotte, who's been brainwashed by somebody, you know that. She didn't come up with this on her own. And you can tell, folks, by looking at this, the writing. This is a young person that's still perfecting their writing skills, as we all did. I just don't see them writing this without somebody coaching them on it with an agenda. For all I know, it could be Biden that manipulated the whole deal. You wouldn't put it past him. And I'm still yet to find a situation where, in any company, this is the truth. This is the case. That, no, we only let males serve in that particular role. Now, maybe there are some that it makes sense for that. Or, no, I'm sorry, we don't pay you the same as we do the ma- your male counterpart doing the same work here. And more importantly, providing, delivering the same value. That's what's important. Not the same job, same value. And the way Time puts it in this article... <clears throat> No matter how many times this wage gap claim is decisively refuted by economists, it always comes back. The bottom line is, the 23-cent gender pay gap is simply the difference between the average earnings of all men and women working full-time. It does not account for differences in occupations, positions, education, job tenure, or hours worked per week. When such relevant factors are considered, the wage gap narrows to the point of vanishing. Right. Wage gap activists say women with identical backgrounds and jobs as men still earn less. But they always fail to take into account critical variables. Activist groups, like the National Organization of Women, have a fallback position that women's education and career choices are not truly free. They're driven by powerful sexist stereotypes. In this view, women's tendency to retreat from the workplace to raise children or enter fields like early childhood education and psychology rather than better-paying professions like petroleum engineering is evidence of continued social coercion. There's just one problem with that. American women are among the best-informed and most self-determining human beings in (laughs) the world. (laughs) To say that they are manipulated into their life choices by force beyond their control is divorced from reality and demeaning to boot. A.K.A. it's horse hockey. That's what it is. That's what it is. I had lots of great female workers. They all did pretty dang good. Those amongst our ranks of account managers had the same pay structure. We didn't have a different one for males and females. I don't know any company that does. That's just wrong. It's inaccurate. It's a lie. It just doesn't exist. But it's a useful lie for useful idiots to get other idiots and their feelings to vote for them. Well, it's it's um, until, as, as this article points out, until we return to reality and have a meaningful discussion about this, where all of those various, various variables and nuances are considered, this is a solution looking for a problem. I just don't see it as a problem. And I'm, I'm open. If you can 
provide me some proof where, yeah, these companies have well-established policies where they just simply don't extend the same opportunities to females, where they don't pay them equitably, let me know. I'm willing to take a look, but in my extensive business career all around the country, I just didn't see it, ever. Honestly, quite the opposite. You want to know the truth. But we're stepping aside for a break right now. We've got uh, Super Talk News, Fox News coming your way. Tracy Barrientos, Executive Director of Lighthouse Academy for Dyslexia, and also Laura Lacoste, board member with Lighthouse Academy for Dyslexia, Dyslexia in the Element Well Studios next. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. And joining us now, it's Tracy Barrientos. Did I say that right? Say that right? Yes, you did. I'm sorry. I wasn't sure who was in (laughs) there. Yes, you did. Executive Director of Lighthouse Academy for Dyslexia and also Laura Lacoste, board member with Lighthouse Academy for dyslexia we get that right you sure did awesome welcome to the show thank you for having us so you guys are um you're tracking some legislation you're trying to push through that uh would accommodate uh, the large number of uh, students with dyslexia Yes, we uh, are. In Mississippi, uh, give us a little background on that. Yeah, so we've been working on this bill language for two years. This is the second year it's come up. It came up originally as House Bill 1200. And what this does is it defi- um, expands the definition of a dyslexia therapist to include certified academic language therapist counts is the short of that. And um, CALTS are nationally recognized specialists. They go through 700 hours of practicum. They have over two years of training to go into the classroom, and they know the science of reading. And this is on top of their master's in education. I see. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like that's uh, f- probably fairly rare. I mean, how many of, of these uh, these CALTS and these therapists like this are around? Do we have enough to accommodate our needs on a statewide basis? I guess so, that's the question. Yeah, that's a great question. And so let's go back to the dyslexia therapists. So all the dyslexia therapy programs in the Mississippi State Universities, their three university programs, are all built on CALT programs. The people that oversee those are called qualified instructors through the CALT program. And we have about 156 of those individuals with master's degrees in dyslexia therapy serving in our public schools. Since the inception of that bill, that original bill in 2012, they've graduated less than 500 dyslexia therapists in our state. Um, however, we have outside organizations that train all over the United States in CALTS, and we have about 243 of those registered in our state right now. Hmm. So if we pass this bill on July 1st, we would have access to what it's taking us about uh, 10 years <laughs> um, in, in therapists. So we would have immediate help in our schools, and it would open the borders so that training organizations that could train teachers could go into the Delta and the northern part of the state. So as it stands, they aren't allowed to do dyslexia therapy under the current law, how it's written. So we have 
the resources. We have these CALDs, and, but they can't do the training. They can in every other state in the country. They're qualified. Um, they are, you know, nationally board certified. And if you, and, you know, and I'm speaking as a mom here, so Tracy can get into the technical and the numbers. But as a mother of a dyslexic child who we struggled for a long time to, to find help, um, we would love more access. And I imagine the parents and families who live in the other areas of the state, which is most of the state, that don't have a dyslexia school, that don't have master's degree dyslexia therapist. I don't, I don't know that there's much of that in the Delta area. Um, thankfully, we had this on the coast. But we floundered and we struggled for a while. So I feel like to hold this group back from helping our Mississippi dyslexic students is um, I don't understand it. Hmm. So tell us about the academy. Where it's located, what you're doing there, the Dyslexia Academy, right? Right. It's the Lighthouse Dyslexia Academy. It's in Ocean Springs. Actually, my son has um, is in ninth grade now. He, he was there fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. But it was so life-changing for us uh, to have gone through that school. He's actually doing very well now. He was fully remediated. It's a fully immersive dyslexia school. Every Everyone there has a dyslexia therapy degree. Hmm. Um, and so they're immersed in that all day for three years. It was amazing. And so I was, I've been so moved that they can't get rid of me now. I'm on the board and just here to support them in any way I can to help more kids in the state mm-hmm. have what we were so blessed to have. And it wasn't easy. You know, we couldn't get it in the public schools, um, it's, which is another reason we want more CALTS. We want the public schools to have these programs because not everybody can afford a private school. Sure. Our first year was $9,000. You know, and so on, and that you know, I'm a single mom. That wasn't easy, but I was able to pull it together and do it. Um, my concern is for all the families that can't afford to do it. So, and that school serves the six southern counties. So, actually, it's very interesting. George County has its own dyslexia therapy program, and okay. um, we actually have a family that commutes one hour both ways because wow. they can't do a pullout program. They needed a fully immersive program. So, to to kind of summarize and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like we have resources that could provide uh, this instruction, this special sort of therapy. Uh, they, they possess the skills to do so, but our laws don't allow them to practice it. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had that law originally when it was built 10 years ago um, was very restrictive. It's the most restrictive language that I can find out of any state in our country. So what's what's the objections you're hearing at the Capitol as to why they're not on board with, uh, yeah. I guess, relaxing the standards here to allow these people to help? kids yeah so that's a really good question Um, i haven't gotten a whole lot of yeah so the interesting thing about this bill is when it was in house bill 1200 it hit the committee not one committee member asked a question it passed every single person on that education committee passed this it went to the floor and it had a unanimous support on the floor so the house has championed services for these dyslexic students and we have about 100,000 of those, Gerard, in our state. Mm-hmm. It represents the largest reading disability in the country. And we've known that out of longitudinal studies out of Connecticut. So about 40 years. And this is an entire population that's not being identified. And if you want to know what reading scores look like across our nation and how well we're doing in reading proficiency, go take a look at the NAEP stores. I mean, yeah. we cannot consider success a 70% non-proficient rate of reading. <laughs> So is, is it the Senate that's uh, the holdup here? It has been held up in the Senate. So the House bill did not make it through the Senate committee. Senate committee let it die on education. They did not bring the bill up, even though it passed unanimously through the it, House. And it went through Senator DeBar's committee it in did. education? It did, yes. It's and an education did, bill. was any explanation offered? Um, no, it, it 
I haven't been able to get an explanation as to why um, they don't think this is a good program. Okay. I have heard some rumors that um, one of the House members that originally supported the bill um, had someone in his district that objected because it provides some competition. And so it's C- competition become political. Competition for what? Um, training programs. It opens up these training programs That's good for thing. other companies. I personally think competition is a good thing. Like, let the cream rise to the top. And well, there was a member that spoke um, that I watched, and he talked about how this was a watered down dyslexia therapy certification, and that our children deserve the best. And I can say, as a mother, I, I don't agree that it's watered down, but for the sake of argument, let's say it is. As a mother who had no help, I'll take a watered down dyslexia therapist over nothing, which is what most of the state has. Um, but they're not watered down. If you look at a comparison chart and it shows they do pretty much all the same things that the master's programs do, except they have to take a national board and the master's programs in Mississippi do not. So I would, what I was waiting to hear was some explanation of why they were subpar, why they were, what, what was this argument? And there was never any information given as to why. So, you know, I, I think that, that this, the, the people who are opposed are very well-intentioned. I think they're misinformed. I think they've I been agree. told that these are watered-down dyslexia therapists, and they're not. If By who? Who's telling them that? Do you know? I'm not. I, I Honestly, from what I can tell, um, it looks like maybe it's a little bit of a turf war, and there's a school, and, and bless them. They've done a lot of great things. And but, pedal. Tracy, you just said – I didn't mean to interrupt, but, Tracy, you just said that uh, you've reviewed the uh, laws in other states that ours seem to be more restrictive. Um, so yes. they're like, are we smarter than the other 49 states on this? Or what's the deal? <laughs> That's what we're being told. We're being ah, told that Mississippi is far above okay. the standards of other states. Oh. But in reality, what we've done is we've created this um, degree, and it's called a dyslexia therapy master's degree. And what it's done is it is a fantastic degree if you have a bachelor's and you're looking to pursue a master's. You know, I'm a product of that degree program, and I absolutely love it. Um, however, if you are a teacher that holds a master's or a specialist from another state in reading and you have trained as a cow and you move into this area, which is the situation that we had in Ridgeland, Mississippi this year, mm-hmm. um, that public school teacher is not allowed to receive that 203 licensure and that school can't have a dyslexia therapy program. Oh my gosh. And so these are our public school kids that we're talking about. And you know what? I think it's time that we put our children in front of the politics. Like it, it's got to be, we've got to care more about our children than we do about our power. And um, and I would just like to see that that we put them first. Well, uh, it's another situation where I feel like we're over-licensing, and we're too focused on that, uh, more so than we are just, just practical benefit and outcomes. Uh, and it, it, this extends a, across a spectrum of occupations in our state, and it's disappointing to hear that that's the situation here because it sounds to me like there are children out there that could be served Absolutely. If we would just make these changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? Honestly, Gerard, there's a lot of money in programs, um, educational programs. And so I understand the restrictions, but let's make smart restrictions. Right. N- another shakedown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's well, what it is. It is. Well, and another issue with that is um, as great as the university programs are, you have to sort of live at least close enough to get to it. You yeah. have to be able to afford it. Um, and these are teachers, and some of those can cost upwards of seventeen to nineteen thousand yeah, dollars. I get it. A cow to seven thousand dollars. Our teachers—that's more doable. So appreciate you, ladies, coming on and Thank breaking that so down much. for us. We're going to keep so tracking much. this. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. All right, we'll take a break right here on middays. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. 
the days with Gerard Gibbert. What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Yeah, it's a great video. They love the drums in this one, man. This is like quintessential 80s video, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was also a great uh, ending to The Breakfast Club. It was, wasn't it, though? You can't help but think about the movie when you hear the tune there. The freeze frame with him standing there with the <laughs> diamond earring and the fist pump. I love it. It's awesome. Well... I appreciate the ladies coming on. Now all they did was get me mad. <laughs> I This licensing stuff in this state, it's nonsense. It's out of control. And I'm telling you, I firmly believe, I've talked to him about it. The governor thinks so, too. But he's just one part of the equation, as you guys know. This is crap. It just is. And it's just another form of protectionism. And this is another thing, Rhino. If you if you took let's take these two issues we've talked so much about from a state perspective the, the last few days, last couple of days. This one I'll I put in that category now because we just got through talking about it. But certainly the last few days, yeah, I admit I've been all over HB four oh one. That's the Restrictive vehicle bill. But in both of these cases, you guys just heard the interview with these ladies about dyslexia and the need to adjust the standards so more therapists, teachers can provide the necessary instruction to help the state's kids who are dyslexic. You heard that. You know we've talked about HB 401 extensively, but in both cases, I believe firmly, confidently, if you put these issues to the public and you accurately, it's very important, accurately describe them, as I believe we've done on this program, and frame them, in a voracious way. I'm not sure you'd find a person out there on the street, average Mississippi voter, that would say, oh yeah, I oppose both of those. It's like all the opposition is coming from under the dome. And outside forces influencing them. I do not believe whatsoever that 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 aligns with the views of their constituents and those in the state. I'm certainly open to be proven wrong here. Have you talked to anybody 
outside of that dome who said, yeah, I sure do wish the legislature would restrict how cars are sold. I sure do wish the legislature would stiffen up the standards to make sure we have fewer people that can help dyslexic kids. If you talk to anybody that says, oh, yeah, I'm in that camp. No. No. So it's like we've got this big separation between the people who make our laws and the people who live under them. Am I inaccurately describing that, or does it seem like that's the case here? No, it it seems like there is definitely a disconnect for at least some members of the legislature. Wow. How can something pass so overwhelmingly in one chamber and not make it out of committee in the other? Now, look, I get that if they're controlled by different parties. You expect that. But not when they're the same party. I'm confused. And I'm I'm happy to, if I'm jumping to a conclusion here on this issue with dyslexia, I'm happy to speak to anybody on Senator DeBar's committee so that they can express their concerns. But if the concern, Rhino, is, well, we got to do this to protect you, I'm, I'm done. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of that, honestly. Yeah, there's no point in it. It's Every, a waste of time, energy, and money. This is what we hear from Biden and the Democrats. That that's their rationale for every everything they do. We got to protect you. We got to protect you from the billionaires. They're getting too much money. You want to protect us from them? Quit buying their stuff. You won't. You can't. Because it's too valuable. You can't imagine life without their stuff. Man, and that's what this feels like. And I'll say it again. Until we acknowledge that in our state, we're at the bottom of the heap. I'm tired of it. Until we acknowledge that, we can't move forward. Because things like this ensure we stay there. Man. And if it really was a single constituent raising a stink about it, that's not good enough. Oh, exactly. That's exactly right. That's the tail wagging the dog. Oh, that's exactly right. On the C Spire tax line, are school board members paid or do they do it for the power? I don't know if there's any pay for school board members or not, honestly. I'm not sure if they're remunerated. Also says, government schools are also the enemy of educating dyslexic kids. We experience with our child. We homeschooled third grade on. She flourished in homeschool. Well, I think that different settings uh, are necessary for different kids. By law, in the state of Mississippi, board members receive no more than $200 per month, but they can be paid. Okay. 200 bucks per month. Maximum. Maximum. All right. I don't think that includes any travel expenses they might incur for going to meetings or conferences, but then again, that's on a county-by-county or a, a municipality-by-municipality basis. Right. Dan in Hattiesburg says, can I assume there's an oppos- opposition from the teachers' union? No, this isn't teachers' unions. That's not terribly strong in Mississippi anyhow. 
in fact, what we just learned was that states that have very strong teachers' unions seem to have better adjusted standards than we do. So, no, that's not the case. I think it's private organizations and organizations that benefit from um, from professionals seeking this additional level of certification. I think that's what it is. I attended an event right after Attorney General Lynn Fitch was in office. She, she asked uh, a number of business people to, uh, to convene at the AG's office to just have an open discussion with her about issues and concerns and things that the AG can do to improve the business climate in our state. I thought that was a, uh, a, a good move on her part and was honored to be asked to attend. And I did. And I remember, Rhino, there was somebody there that was griping about commercial real estate licensing. This licensing issue comes up again. Fearful that, oh my gosh, commercial real estate brokers from other states might be able to operate in Mississippi. Thus increasing competitiveness, the competitive landscape, likely decreasing cost, increasing choice. That's what happens in innovation. Oh, Attorney General, you got to do something. We can't let that happen. Man, I've, I've never seen so many people thinking about that and cars and now it's dyslexia training. Push government to protect their little domains. What are you afraid of? Maybe that your value proposition isn't all that valuable? That's exactly what it means. And these same people will tell you, oh, I'm a big promoter of free market principles. I'm all about that. You're not. You're about central planning. You're about government picking winners and losers. Government deciding standards that are so onerous and honestly often irrelevant all in the name of we got to protect you man we better wake up or we're going to continue to flounder economically it's just as simple as that and i'm i don't want to anymore i want more opportunity I want more wealth creation in our state. I want to see household incomes and per capita incomes rise precipitously. we got to get off the bottom. I love it here. I love the people here. We have so much to offer. Let's leverage it. Let's capitalize it on it. That means government's got to get the hell out of the way. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Started today. Adoring fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
unmistakable vocals of the great late Brad Delt. What a tragedy that was, man. Still hard to understand. Committed suicide. Left some notes around. Said he didn't have any friends. So sad. Yeah, that's a sadly common refrain from Hollywood stars and big rock star musicians and people that have achieved pretty much all you can achieve in their field because you you find yourself surrounded by people that want something from you and don't actually want to know you right and of course he had a bit of a riff with uh lead guitars musical genius tom schultz he's the one that invented that sort of electric sound MIT engineer I guess kind of popularized the what do they call it the slide on the neck is is kind of a intro into guitar riffs or I don't know all the musical arrangement terminology but he um you find that in their music a lot but wow what a genius he was and how good they were together unbelievable it's just you hate to see that kind of conflict between two talented artists like that ultimately to help took his life wow on the ceasefire text line joe from sumrall by the way 601-879-4395 and also we do have some train tickets to give away later on in the program biden probably sincere sincerely wrote that himself sounds like something he would write and he needs to be worrying about us finding out where all the money us finding out where all the money uh, he got from about all the money he got from China. Yeah, we were referring to a um, a note on what looks like a, a child's yellow tablet written in pencil sent to the president demanding he step in and and mandate equal pay for men and women. And Rhino sent us this article and read from it from Time of all sources, which was excellent and just debunks the whole thing because it is a lie it's false and again i ask if you've got some some empirical evidence some examples of companies not equally compensating and i don't mean for necessarily the exact same position because as the article pointed out when rhino read it there are a gazillion other factors as there should be we call those qualitative as opposed to quantitative well of course there are and it's already against the law to discriminate exactly so, so if they actually had evidence of a man and a woman in the same exact position with the same exact benefits and the same exact time worked and the man makes more than the woman, if they've got evidence of that, then they have evidence of the law being broken. Right. But if such a suit would arise, and the defendants, this would, in this case being the company, could show, well, yeah, there's a lot of other issues that went into this pay structure than just the gender, which is what they want to make it. All outcomes based on immutable physical characteristics, things over which you have no control, rather than performance and qualifications, and again, most importantly, value contribution. It's all about value. 
I don't remember ever thanking an employee because of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation. Didn't care. Continuously. Not only thanked them, but compensated them for their... Over and over, I would always say, we're so grateful for your contribution to our success. That's what made you valuable. That's why we honor and recognize you. That's why we compensate you. It's your value contribution. Gosh, it just ain't that hard. So take this. Take the example of the same job, same work craft. Think about NFL quarterbacks. You got the starting quarterback, so-called franchise quarterback of an NFL team. Then you got the backup. Do they make the same pay, same job, same work? Usually not. Usually I'm not. sure there's an example where it's a lot closer than normal, but yeah, usually the starter is going to make more. Right. Because they provide more value to the organization. Right. You know what that value is? People tune in on the TV to watch them, go to the games in person. Mainly it's TV, because you know what, what that produces is ad revenue. Nobody wants to watch the backup. No disrespect to the backup. They're better than 99.999% of all of us. But the fact is, there ain't but one. And the one that's there is is uh, the person people tune in to see. And when they're tuning in to see, advertisers say, where can I sign up to buy those ads? What the hell was it? The Super Bowl this past year is enormous. Like $7 bucks for 10 seconds or something like that. Uh, I know it was off the charts, as it should be. Averaged out to between 6 and $7 million for every 30-second spot. Okay, there you go. But that does not include the cost of making the ad. Right, of course. Which in most production Super Bowl costs. ads are a pretty big production. Yeah, because they're um, innovative, they're creative, new, And novel. most of the time, a Super Bowl ad is like a, a movie premiere. Yeah. It's not the only time that is going to be shown. That's good. So they're point. going to try to get their money's worth out of it. They're going to debut the ad during the Super Bowl and then run it for as long as they can milk it. But you think about the reach you get, the audience reach for 30 seconds, a global audience for seven million bucks? That ain't squat. You, I mean, if you're a company that has a national or a global reach of the products and services you sell. It's, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. I got started on this about this pay disparity crap. I'm so sick of all this equity junk. It's, it's just a, such a ruse. Total, totally. Unbelievable. Yeah, it comes out, depending on which ratings you believe, the uh, ad buy comes out to about six cents per customer. <laughs> Unbelievable. On the C Spire tax line. Or potential customer, I guess I should say. Potential customer, yeah. Uh, but, and there, as you know, there are all kinds of measurements of the, the addressable market versus the amount that actually did business with you. All that's figured into the model when they make those investments. They know what they're doing. Oh, maybe government needs to step in and protect them, though. Unbelievable. It's a money grab talking about the dyslexia deal. It, you know, I don't want to jump into any conclusions here, really. I don't know, and and the ladies didn't either. I don't know the rationale for the objections. I, I'd like to know. I, I'm 
interested in hearing what those would be so that but like i said if it's a single constituent of a single legislator then the legislator should have had the gonads to go tough i I agree i agree so this is the problem i believe when lawmaking policy policy making is done with an eye towards the next election cycle always Every word is measured on that basis, every action, every vote, rather than what's in the best interest of the constituents overall. But in that example of one constituent and one legislator, that one constituent's not going to get them elected. Unbelievable. Uh, Exactly. But they could raise enough hell to influence, unfortunately. Then maybe that one constituent should be the legislator. I agree. If they hold that much sway and power in that area. Suit up. Run. Tim of the Delta says Delbert is a Democrat. I don't know if this has anything to do with him or not, honestly. This is the reason our legislatures our legislators, pardon me, will not pass a citizens initiative, says Karen and Ripley. They do not want us to have a voice. This is their way of saying the citizens aren't smart enough to know what's best for our own state. I hear you, Karen, but we do have a voice at the ballot box. Why don't we vote accordingly? See, Trey and Vaden wanted to know if school board members receive insurance. They're not full-time employees of the district, Trey, so... Technically speaking, uh, group insurance should not be available to them. I, I seriously doubt it. I mean, school board members in general, they have full-time work elsewhere. And we did have somebody chime in. Chime in I'm looking for it where they uh, they served as a former superintendent. I saw that, too. And they said that uh, school board members traveled for, like, conferences is paid for by each school district. Yeah. I saw that too. Yeah, oh, there, there we go. Johnny six, from Greenwood. Two. Yep, sure, sure was. School board members travel for conferences. That's paid for by the district. Yeah, tells us he served as a, she served as a superintendent. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, you got to wonder if that's even a worthy investment, though. Honestly, running school board members off to conferences and stuff. I don't know about that. What are we getting for that? Coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi we are in the element wealth studios don't forget tomorrow the boys from sports talk mississippi will be at the sports book at the timeout lounge at the pearl river resort they'll get you ready for the big basketball tournament and don't forget you can catch all the action anytime at the sports book at the timeout lounge it's a pretty cool place by the way you haven't been there and um, 
it's hard to believe. It, it is March Madness. The games have already kicked off. Today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear part one of an interview with author Dr. Bo Thomas as he talks about his new book on leadership. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by visitmississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Super Talk Mississippi stations, supertalk.fm, and available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And once again, we got some tickets to give away later on. Gary in Meridian says, My dead grandmother's cousin friend said that she got paid less than Jethro Bodine, so it's got to be true. Plus, I saw it on Facebook talking about the so-called wage gap that Robert Reich is going off on about. Yeah, it's so true, Gary. <laughs> exactly how that crap gets going. Jack and Jacktown says, I think referring to the dyslexia stuff, vintage politics over policy. The only person that I would think that would think, pardon me, Delbert is a Democrat, is going to be a McDaniel supporter, says Mose. I did note, just wanted to pass this on, that the lieutenant governor, Delbert Hoseman, is planning what is described as, I'm looking at the flyer for this, a Mississippi Spring soiree. They're going down to Mar-a-Lago Club in Florida. That's down in Palm Beach, Florida, of course, on April the 5th. Well, you got to go somewhere, Swanky, if you're going to throw the word soiree around. <laughs> That's true. And uh, there's a 5.30 p.m. arrival, 6 p.m. private reception commences. Chairman photo reception will set you back 25 grand. VIP reception, 2,500. Ambassador, 1,000 bucks. Student, 750. Looking at the host committee. I shall read the names of the host committee for you. Senators uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith and Roger Wicker. Congressman Trent Kelly, Congressman Michael Guest, Congressman Corey Mills, Congressman Mike Ezel, Lieutenant Governor Will Ainsworth, Lieutenant Governor Billy Nuskesser, Stewart and Martha Fain. Nungesser is the Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana, pretty sure. Not sure where Will Ainsworth is the Lieutenant Governor. Everyone else, I think. Uh, Alabama. Okay, yeah. So the state to our east and the state to our west. That's on April 5th. Interesting. Ben from Madison says, kind of off topic, but uh, it actually is on topic, Ben, after the story we just shared. Kind of off topic, but are we expecting debates between Senator McDaniel and Lieutenant Governor Hoseman, as well as Governor Reeves and Brandon Presley? I, you know, I don't know. I haven't I heard I would say anything. it is much more likely you will see a debate between Governor Reeves and challenger Brandon Presley than you would see Chris McDaniel versus Delbert Hoseman. Well, that's two different parties in the, in the case of the governor, right. yeah, the former. So I think you're right. That's more likely. We did see, as Ben points out, a debate between Hood and Reeves. But that, of course, was for the general. For the primary, I'm not sure. I kind of doubt you'd see a primary debate. I, I tend to agree. I, um, I'm offering my services to, to host and moderate if um, that should be the case. Something should materialize. That would be an honor. 
Mike in Gulfport says, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman is a left-leaning conservative, in my view. He has made multiple decisions that could have been collaboration with Democrats, which may have been best of the options. He does seem to be a man of firm conviction with his decisions, albeit not in agreement with me in every case. However, I am but one vote, and as such, I'll have my chance to decide if I disagree enough to vote for someone else. Well put, Mike. Thomas and Greenwood, of course, says, I think Delbert is a Democrat, and I taint a McDaniel fanboy. Okay. William and Greenville says, Lieutenant Governor is a good Democrat. Interesting. So, we're just getting cranked up here because the... The session is still ongoing, but they'll be out of there in a couple of weeks. And then you feel like the campaigns will be in full swing at that point, with the primaries approaching in August and the general election in November. But Hour 2 is in the books here on Middays. We've got Super Talk News, Fox News coming your way, and then Representative Charles Busby is coming in the Element Well Studios. To the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Hour three of middays, Super Talk Mississippi. We are live from the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. Joining us now, calling in, is Representative Charles Busby. He represents District 111, that's Jackson County, serves as the chair of the Transportation Committee. Representative Busby, good to have you on middays. Thank you, Gerard. Thanks for having me. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Rhino. Afternoon. All right, so uh, you guys are about to wind things up down there, but we got uh, an infrastructure proposal that, of course, is in your wheelhouse, being chair of the Transportation Committee. Tell us about that. No, oh, let me just, you know, we've had we've got three of them, and, and they're all just fantastic. The one that the governor came out with uh, a couple of weeks ago was great at $1.3 billion. Uh, and then the Senate came out with a great one, too, at, at um, $620 million. And then the House position kind of fell in the middle there at, at eight hundred million. Uh, so uh, I think I, I think I like the House position the best. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little slighted, uh, but uh, not too much. Uh, that would put that would put six hundred and fifty million towards capacity projects versus four eighty that's in the Senate plan. And uh, both of both plans have a hundred million to go to ERBR. Both have plans. Uh, both plans have forty million for the match money from the from the feds on the Infrastructure and Jobs Act. Um, and then the House plan also has a little money in in there for multimodal, ten million. I'm I'm hoping to actually get that up a little bit. I think we got an opportunity between now and 2026 
to uh, capitalize on some federal money there. So I'd like to see us put some more money into uh, into multimodal. But I guess the thing that that I really hope we can the, the House plan does not earmark any project. Simply allows the commission to put shovel ready projects uh, uh, to get them going and following the three-year plan that's put together by the commission, which which is by need uh, throughout the state. Yeah. And uh, if, we, if we choose to earmark those projects, then what we do is we, we dedicate those funds to those projects, and, and the $650 million gets us down to a certain point on that list, and, and it's all the money for the project. So if we were to get federal match money, if it ended up being like an 80-20 match uh, with the feds putting up 80%, then if we had earmarked those dollars for that project in the bill, then those dollars would would have to be reappropriated then. We wouldn't be able to use those. We wouldn't have the flexibility in the, in the commission to use those dollars on other projects. So I'm hoping that we can get out of here with a great bill uh, without the earmarks. Yeah, I understand. So what are you hearing from your colleagues in the chambers there? Uh, my colleagues in the House are all for this, uh, I believe, as most of my colleagues in the Senate are. Um, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will come out of this with a clean bill uh, in the House position with no earmarks. And I think uh, maybe meeting just in the next couple of days, today and tomorrow, I I'm hoping that that's uh, that's where we end up with the Senate. I know we had some conversations uh, with Senate earlier this week, and um, it it looked like that's where we were headed. So I hope we will continue down that road. We're chatting with Representative Charles Busby. Uh, so, what about the governor? Where, where does he stand on this? Well, obviously, I think he would prefer to have his plan at the 1.3 billion. But you know that that yeah. uh, plan. MBA projects in there too, which are going to get some other some other funding. Uh, I, I'm as best I know, as much as as I know about this, and uh, and what I understand, I think the governor is good with this plan, with the House plan. Representative Busby, can you give us an example or two of of uh, what an earmark would look like that's embedded in bills such as this? Yeah, let me. But let me let me say this before yeah. we do that. We are looking, everybody here is looking at the same list of projects. Nobody is wanting to add to that list or subtract from that list. We are looking at the top projects in the MDOT three-year plan and those projects that are shovel-ready. Okay. But uh, an example would be where... We would we would pull out, say U.S. sixty one to Port Gibson bypass, uh, and and we would just save that project in the bill. That it's the intent of the legislature that you know two million dollars be spent on U.S. sixty one Port Gibson bypass, uh, and and that's how that would be written. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, but we, then if we fool around and get you know, $1.6 million from the Fed to go towards the U.S. 61 Port Gibson bypass, 
now we've got $1.6 million that have been earmarked to a, to a, a road that we don't need that money for, mm-hmm. and we can't do anything else with it. So that's what we're hoping to avoid. Yeah, unfortunately, it just seems like this is always part of the sausage-making process that I think you are well aware aggravates the, the voters, the citizens. Oh, yeah, I, it does. And it, it, it slows down the system and, and, and actually, you know, handcuffs our, our commission over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of makes it where you don't want to go chase that federal money when, in fact, we, we probably – uh, should be should be chasing that to, if if we can get it to to leverage it onto all our streets, our roads, our bridges, then then we should be able to do that. We don't want to handcuff them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, uh, tell us about your campaign. <laughs> well, uh, the campaign is going well. I, everywhere I go, I am uh, I met with uh, with a lot of support. We're going to have a fundraiser. Over in Pearl uh, at Lamar Advertising next week on Tuesday, have a have a crawfish bowl. Give me an opportunity to meet a few more folks and and uh, get a little get a little name ID, I guess. And then I was uh, I was very fortunate to be invited uh, by the Hattiesburg ADP uh, to visit with them last Monday, uh, along with Congressman Mike Ezel. Uh, about their infrastructure needs for projects in their area. So it was great to get to know them, the Super Board of Supervisors from Forest County, Board of Supervisors from Lamar County, and uh, all the city officials from Hattiesburg. Uh, just lots of support there. So I look forward to, to working uh, with with everyone in the Pine Belt and along the coast and uh, to, to, to do the best that we can with sure. roads and bridges across that area. Yeah, so I should clarify. Obviously, you're running for transportation commissioner of the Southern uh, District. Oh uh, yeah, I kind of get people don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> which so, yeah. seems like kind of a normal transition uh, for you, Representative Busby, serving on the transportation committee, but also having an extensive background in that line of work. Uh, yes, sir. I, I, as we've said on the on the show before, not that the skill set is all that great, but the skill set is tailor made for that position. Uh, being an engineer, being a contractor, and having uh, chaired the House Transportation Committee for the last eight years, right? I think kind of kind of uh, kind of it sets me up as a as a unique person to fill that position, and uh, I look forward to the opportunity to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think about the remainder of the session? Any Anything that uh, you see coming down the pike that might be a bit controversial? The governor vetoed a couple of bills uh, related to insurance uh, yesterday, yeah, I believe. I, you know, I, I think I think 1020 is, is going to garner some attention. Uh, uh, but that, that that's really the only major controversy i think we're going to have we're actually working through the calendar pretty well yeah uh, i was hoping that we would finish up early and maybe conference through the week and not have a conference weekend and get this done maybe a week early but not sure that that's the way that's going to happen uh, i i i really believe that we're going to be able to hammer out this this transportation bill uh i don't i don't think we'll have any issues with that i i think we'll end up with the House position, at least I hope that's where we end up, and I think we'll get there pretty soon and be able to pull the, you know, get that one on out of the way, get it, uh, get it on the calendar, and get it done. Um, as far as uh, transportation goes, you know, 
I, I don't have a lot of controversial things out there. Um, so it's not a lot, not a lot on the calendar for me. So I don't yeah. have much, much work to do, uh, to finish this thing up. You guys uh, may get out of there a couple of days early, and then it uh, it's my guess you'll be in full swing campaign mode. Uh, everybody will after that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. You know, I don't <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to be throwing signs up and stuff like that until after the primaries. I don't have a primary opponent. I, I only have a general opponent, uh, and I don't think people want to look at those signs for eight months. So. Yeah. Uh, I'll probably wait until the primaries are over before I actually start advertising really hard. But we will spend the time between now and then uh, going all over the district and meeting all the good people Sounds in the good. district and seeing what their needs are and seeing how we can help them going forward. Appreciate you coming on, Representative Busby. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bring the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. In the Element Wealth Studios, it is middays. Hang around, because in a minute we're going to give away some tickets to see train. So on the ceasefire tax line, a conversation between Rhino and a listener that I thought might be of interest. Says, Gerard, I just heard the clip of Yellen stating that no taxpayer money will be used to secure the deposits at the failed banks. What do you think about that statement? I know that the federal government can just print dollars, but doesn't the government only have one place to get money from the taxpayer? Yeah, it's a good question, and, and Rhino points out that after the banking crisis of 08, there was a special fund uh, created that uh, essentially allocates money from banking fees for the purpose of insuring against these sorts of, of failures. Now, I didn't know it had $100 billion in it, um, is what Rhino reports here by the time this all started late last week. So, so it is true that the feds are covering uh, some of these losses, but not all with that fund, is my understanding. But in general, it's the FDIC, and it's the member banks who fund the FDIC insurance, which, of course, insures up to 250000 per account. But it's also true, we should point out, that when the Fed uh, and the, let's see, the Fed, the FDIC, and the Treasury met over the weekend, they invoked what's called the systemic risk exception. So it's crazy, but after 08, literally, there are some banks that are that are considered more important than others, if you will. Systemically important banks is literally how they are termed, labeled, SIBs. 
This bank was not one of them, but an exception was made because of its size and because of its projected impact should it fail on the entire banking sector and the banking system in the country. So what the Fed did, however, which technically you could say is not taxpayer money, but they did set up a special facility, credit facility, that allows the bank to borrow against it, shore up its, its, um, its balance sheet, its liquidity situation, which was caused by a run on it. And the run was because some depositors figured out it, it made some bad loans and bad investments was flush with all these treasury bonds, long-term treasury bonds, that it financed when rates were virtually zero, if not zero at the time. It just borrowed money, pulled money down, went and bought treasuries, paying 3 4% long-term treasuries. And then when the rate rises on those, because the Fed has been busy trying to tackle inflation, raising the Fed funds rate, well, then the value of those bonds on their books drops dramatically because they're paying very low interest rates relative to what you could get in a brand-new bond today. That's how that works. So they needed to raise capital, and they start looking at liquidating some of those bond holdings at a huge discount. You bought the bond for 100 bucks, for example. It's paying 2%. You need to raise money to fix your liquidity problem, so you sell it to an investor but you bought it for a hundred. Now you got to sell it at eighty because it only pays two percent to make the yield work out to equal or exceed what the investor could get if they bought a brand new bond. It's paying say five percent. I hope that explanation makes sense. But that's the that's the bottom line. It's it's no different than you bought a house. You paid a hundred thousand for the house and you want to sell it five years later. The market's cratered and. Now the house is worth eighty thousand. That's all you're going to get. Eighty thousand. You got to sell it at a discount. So what you probably do is, well, I just won't sell it. In the case of this bank, they didn't have that luxury because they needed cash, or else they were going to crash. And the only way they had to raise cash is to sell these bonds, sell their assets, like anybody does. I I need cash. I got to sell some assets. And we we talked about it briefly while you were out earlier this week, but. I mean, you go back in history and, and the way bank tellers and bank employees were taught to fight against a bank run was to count as slowly as possible. <laughs> like, all right, here's back when one, it was cash. <laughs> a two. Yeah, and you got to do it a few a times three. to make sure you only got one. Oh, wait, <laughs> I, got, I, got, I miscounted. A one, <laughs> a two. While everybody's waiting in line to, to slow out, to slow down the momentum, well, that's just not possible nowadays. It's all digital. Yeah. And and so these bank runs, I mean, there's some that literally are going physically in person. You saw a video of that and so forth. Uh, so it it's kind of convoluted, honestly, in that, yes, the Fed is a, owned by the, it's not owned by the taxpayers. It's, um, it's quasi-public, if you will, but it does have the authority to print money, which adds to the debt owned by the taxpayers. That's the crazy, uh, that's that intersectionality thing, <laughs> finance intersectionality, I guess you could call it. So an interesting statement, though, I caught this morning, Rhino, from 
Shark Tank, you know that show, Kevin O'Leary. Man, he took some serious shots. Now, he's chairman of O'Leary Ventures, big venture capitalist, private equity group. He says, we don't need regional banks anymore. I'm serious. He, he says that... Is he speaking as an entrepreneur in America or as a Canadian citizen? I don't know, because he could be either. You're right about that. He said all sorts of new regulations are likely to arise over this. That's exactly what happened in 08. Oh, yeah. That's how we got Dodd-Frank. No doubt. And he said that these would be problematic for the regional banking system, meaning those which aren't national banks. And he said, we've got more black swans swimming in the lake. We just don't know where they are. These are just unexpected events. It's the, it's the metaphor for that. He said, this isn't like 08 in any measure. Silicon Valley Bank had stupid loans out. Agree. We just got through saying it. He said the same thing. That's the bottom line. Everybody's figured that out. Well, it wasn't hard. And he does believe that this could, in fact, cause the um, lot of regional banks just to no longer be around. And I don't know that that necessarily means there's a, a run on them. But there's probably going to be consolidation is what's going to happen. You're going to end up with just the, the big national scope banks as opposed to regional banks. and It's just fascinating. But he, he literally says that, yeah, we don't, we don't need – we don't need these um, these banks anymore. And there's there's certainly some truth to the fact that their their value is being somewhat diminished with the advent of all the digital tools we have. I'd say most people do almost all their banking without ever going to the bank. Is that fair to say? You got direct deposit. I wouldn't say most at this point, but it's definitely growing, and it's growing faster and faster. Yeah. Well, let's... Because there are uh, still a lot of people, like you have a lot of banks that do the whole, hey, take a picture of your check, and we'll deposit it immediately. And that's available, but there's still a, a sizable portion of the population that doesn't feel comfortable doing that on a phone. They'd I much agree. rather take the check to the bank. I agree with you, but that's also a function of there still being a lot of people who are generating paper checks. Correct. Unnecessarily. Correct. In in almost all cases now, honestly. So, but you're right, but as the next generation becomes the the bank customers of tomorrow and they and they dominate the the landscape of customers, they ain't going to the bank. No, not unless they absolutely have to. Yeah. And that's rare. So we've got all these physical branches all over the place. And most of the time, if you go in any of these branches, there are a lot of places for people to sit, workers that are empty. You've oh, seen yeah, it. I've seen, I won't say countless, that'd be an exaggeration, but I've seen three banks in in my general area that... They no longer have drive-through tellers and inside tellers. The tellers work the drive-through exactly and inside. Right. Seen that too. But even when you're, and I'm not diminishing whatsoever the value because you know I totally believe in the value of face-to-face interaction when you're doing 
business, like you're, let's say you're a business and you're seeking financing, a loan, for example. I totally agree with that. But I'm saying a lot of the sort of transactions that used to take people don't anymore. And I think that's a, an issue the bank's got to face up to. And that's why one of the reasons O'Leary says we don't need him. Coming right back. Stay with us. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. And we now got some tickets to give away. Oh, yeah. Grammy Award-winning and platinum-selling band Train are going to be at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon on September 7th. We had a typo yesterday and said the 17th. It's on September 7th. The tickets for the show are going to go on sale at the Brandon Amphitheater box office or Ticketmaster.com on Friday. But you can actually buy your tickets a day early using our promo code BA2023. So if you want to buy some tickets, if you don't win today, you can buy them right now with the promo code BA2023. But if you're a little short on funds and you want a chance to win your tickets before you can buy them with the, the code, all you got to do is be the 18th person to text into the ceasefire text line. That number is 601-879-4395. Text in the word TRAIN, and you'll win a pair of tickets to see TRAIN on September 7th at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon. There you go. On the ceasefire text line willis in hattiesburg says let's see yeah uh democrats plan for social security if i understood it right today in a congressional meeting with treasury secretary janet yellen is to cut benefits by 24 percent in nine years need to start now cutting congress and senate benefits along with salary each by 25 percent well, what she's saying, uh, Willis, is um, is that if something isn't done to shore up Social Security's finances, that benefits will cut. They'll be cut. They'll suffer. Not that that's what they want to do, because I can assure you, in fact, what the Democrats want to do is increase Social Security benefits and to pay for those by dramatically increasing taxes – On those dirty, greedy, evil, rich people, they're going to pay for everything. That's the goal. He goes on to say, Republican congressman brought it up to her that that was the Democrats' plan, and she did not deny that's what it was. I'm too old to see all this happen, but the country has been mismanaged for years, and today the country's finances are a ticking time bomb. Yeah, I'd have to see more what the conversation was, but I've seen zero talk or evidence from anyone on uh, the Democrat side of the aisle suggesting they want to decrease benefits. In fact, it's quite the opposite. 
Joe Biden's plan, which every single one of them would would support, that he just released, does call for dramatic tax increases on both Social Security and Medicare to uh, to improve the financial strength of the programs. What is absolutely true is that the Medicare trust fund, the trustees, are reporting that by 2028, which ain't far away, that Part A benefits, those are hospital benefits under Medicare, will not, that the trust fund will not be able to 100% meet its obligations. Meaning, if hospitals are providing services to Medicare patients in 2028, unless something changes, Medicare will not be able to pay the hospitals at 100% of Medicare reimbursement rates, which are already below private reimbursement rates. It's a disaster. And that would cause the entire health care system in this country to collapse. Yet nobody's talking about it. Nobody wants to address it because it's political suicide. It's politically toxic. They won't talk about it. And that's coming. Five years. Five years. Not long. But that's absolutely been reported. I did see that Representative Mace from is it North Carolina or South Carolina, I did see she, she made a statement that, yeah, we got to seriously look at, at increasing the retirement ages, the ages where one becomes eligible to participate in these two programs. Not talking about next year, not talking about folks rapidly approaching, but to just, again, improve the financial situation and preserve the programs. Maybe if you're just starting to, you're just starting in the workforce and just beginning to pay, receive compensation and pay Social Security and Medicare taxes, you're in your 20s, maybe you don't retire until you're 70, as an example. It's going to have to be talked about, and it's not. And nobody will touch it. But I will make this commitment here on this program that when we approach election season, talking about the federal level, and then I'll discuss the state as well in a minute, but at the federal level, candidates that we talk to for Congress, for Senate, we may even be fortunate and interview a candidate for president in 2024, we will point blank ask them, what are their plans to address this very serious issue? And and we know campaign season is just around the corner here in Mississippi for statewide elections. All offices. Those running for lawmaking offices, Senate, House, Governor, Lieutenant Governor. I will ask them what their plans are for PERS. Because you see all this stuff happening in the banking industry, it's bad for PERS. It's bad. And it's, again, I know it is getting long in the tooth, and I apologize for repeating this very simple statement, 
very simple analysis. You either got to get more money coming in, pay less out, or a combination of the two. It's real simple. You need to have a plan if you're running for office, because I'm going to ask you. And I don't mean just, well, I'm going to talk to everybody and see what to do. No, I want to know specifically, mechanically, what are you going to do? What do you at least support? What do you think we should do? What will you advocate for? What will you propose? And saying, I don't know, i got to wait and see, is not the right answer, in my view. It's not a good answer. But, you know, Rhino, when you look at these push cards, uh, and what I'm talking about there, guys, you, you've seen the flyers, the this, this single-page, kind of heavy paper, promotional campaign materials usually have a photo of the candidate and their family. And, and then there's typically you see bullet points, right? Bullet points of the uh, about the candidate and their various positions, which is all fair. I mean, they're trying to tell you who they are. Uh, but this is what I would like not to see on these push cards anymore. This is just me. And I'm talking about mainly those running in Republican primaries. Don't tell me you're Christian. Don't tell me that you're pro-life and pro-Second Amendment. Because you know what? So is everybody else. They all put that on there. Like, that's something distinctive. That's not distinctive. It doesn't set you apart. I want to know why you. Telling me that you're just like everybody else doesn't tell me why you. Would you go to an interview? Let's say that you know you're involved in an interview for a job, and you know you're competing with multiple candidates. Would you go there thinking, what can I say that makes sure they know I'm just like all the other candidates? No, I don't want to know that. I want to know what makes you different. i, I got to tell you guys, <laughs> I took, as a sophomore in college, Required class, not sure if it still is, Rhino. Business communications, of course. You need business communications if you're a business major. I had to take it. Had a professor. I can still remember him, Dr. Harwood. I call him Dr. Hardwood because he was hard. He made that course pretty hard. But but one of the exercises as uh, part of the course was to do a resume. Of course it should be. You're a college student. You're going to be looking for a job one day. Now, this is before computers. This is when you had to type stuff out. Look, Before one, you just filled in the template. Yes, exactly. So one of the students, I'll never forget this. She did hers on uh, first on construction paper, like red construction paper. And she like drew in outline form the numbers one and U, the letter U, the number one, the letter U, and had between it four. The one for you. And her entire resume flowed inside the template. And Harwood went nuts. I mean, she got like A+. plus Because what he said, it made a lot of truth. You got a stack of resumes, that one you're going to remember. It's true. Differentiated. So telling me you're pro-life and pro-Second Amendment, <sighs> okay, you and everybody else. What are you going to do about PERS? Coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. 
Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Rusty on the ceasefire tax line says, I agree. Tax all the young woke folks so I can keep getting my benefits, too, with the smiling face emoji. Ben from Madison says, Mace seems kind of like a rising star in the GOP. I think she is right on this issue. Mike Pence has said something about it, um, and so uh, recently has... Um, but somebody else. There's another candidate in the Republican field that has also indicated that the need to address uh, Social Security and Medicare, because it's it's absolutely true. It just not doing anything is not a plan uh, at whatsoever. But the, they just seem to think, well, if I just don't talk about it, huh? I guess that'll be fine. And it doesn't make any sense. Nikki Haley, it was her. Yeah, she said something about it, too. Mike Pence has. And, of course, the president jumps all over that and says, they want to end Social Security and Medicare. I mean, I'm so sick of that. No. They want to try to bring it to your attention because you don't want to do anything except raise taxes. The solution to every problem known to man, according to Biden and the Democrats, is raise taxes. Tax the billionaires, saw them, it's their fault. It's Robert Reich saying, they'll never miss it. That's not how tax policy should be made. Who are you to determine what someone else might or might not miss? That's irrelevant. You know, you wouldn't miss Twitter if you didn't have it either. So get off of it, you fool, because all you do is spout a bunch of junk. Herschel says, I know um, there are many major issues with the health care and the amount being charged by the medical facilities and the amounts being paid by insurance companies. Uh, however, I recently took my child to a clinic. The nurse weighed, checked her temperature, height, blood pressure, and asked the routine medical questions. The practitioner came in, listened to my child's breathing, looked in her mouth and ears, made the diagnosis of viral, hmm, and then practitioner prescribed medication. I received my explanation of benefits last week and saw the clinic bill the insurance company six fifty five. After the agree the agreed upon discount, my insurance company paid the clinic four eighteen for a routine office visit. So who is more responsible for the out of control health care situation and the cost? Yet uh, yet another great show today. Thank you both. Appreciate that, Herschel. Well, I mean that's a long discussion. There's no one source. No one party, no one participant in the nation's health care system that you can say, oh, yeah, that's definitely it. That's the cause. But what I can say is as long as people get care and they don't pay for it, those who pay for it are going to pay more. It's just simple as that. And that's exactly what's happening. So what you just paid for there, Herschel, or your insurance company and your premiums that funded those, was all the care they give that they don't get paid for. That's the fundamental issue. And it's unique to that industry. I've talked about it numerous times before. There's not another industry of which I'm aware that can 
provi- provides its its services knowing it's not going to get paid for. I, I can't think of another one where that's more customary, typical. And so we're all hitting the hip for it. I saw this morning where there's some increase, there's an increase in the occurrence of Alzheimer's in the over 65 population. No explanation for it at this point. Maybe it's because we're better at diagnosing it. I don't know. But I was shocked to find out it's a $300 billion, $300 billion a year problem in terms of treatment cost. But here's the thing, and I've talked about this before, there are lots of new drugs, lots of new therapies in the works that you're going to see released in the not-so-distant future. It's now estimated that in five years, the annual cost in this country of treating Alzheimer's, a trillion dollars. A trillion. A trillion for one disease. Now, the good news is it's probably curative. Or certainly, usually it's phased in to such treatments where the the, uh, effects of the disease is dramatically reduced. Life is prolonged. To phase in to a point where maybe there's a complete cure. I mean, that's what we need because if we have a complete cure, then we don't have all the cost of treatment. But this is the dilemma. What do we do? Does Medicare say, no, I'm sorry, you just got to die. You can't have that because we can't afford it? Or do we pay for it? See the problem here? We, and I've said it so many times before we keep inventing new drugs, new therapies, new treatments, new procedures. That's all great, but it all costs money and everybody wants it, understandably so. But we don't have any money to pay for it. This is the dilemma that's going to confront everybody in government. And it ain't going away, and they don't want to talk about it. Because it's hard. And it's not a fun political subject. They'd rather tell you they're pro-life and (laughs) pro-2A. They don't want to touch these issues. What we need to be touched. We're out of time here today. We thank you so much for joining us. We're back in the Element Well Studios tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Talk Mississippi Media Production.